Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. We've been waiting for it for weeks. In the face of unprecedented global headwinds, families, pensioners, businesses, teachers, nurses and many others are worried about the future. An economy in recession a vast and terrifying fiscal hole to be filled, and a Chancellor unveiling tens of billions in tax rises and spending cuts. So today we deliver a plan to tackle the cost of living crisis and rebuild our economy. We were warned it would be eye-watering. In the weeks leading up to Thursday's autumn statement, we've seen the return of a familiar theme. Austerity. Today's statement delivers a consolidation of £55 billion. Jeremy Hunt's statement yesterday took place in a very different context to 2010, of course. And what he announced looks very different to George Osborne's economic programme from 2010 onwards, for now at least. We also protect the vulnerable, because to be British is to be compassionate, and this is a compassionate... Hunt didn't stand up and announce a return to austerity in his speech, of course. But sure enough, hidden away inside the budget documents were tens of billions of pounds of planned spending cuts, punted carefully beyond the next election. It shows that you don't need to choose either a strong economy or good public services. With Conservatives, and only with Conservatives, you get both. And I commend this statement to the House. What's clear is that even as I record this podcast, with Westminster still scrambling to unpack Hunt's autumn statement, and remember, it can sometimes take a day or two for a budget to unravel, the debate over austerity is back. And its legacy, and the thinking around it now, is everywhere in the way Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak are approaching their own decisions today. I believe the events around the world completely vindicate the decision of this coalition government from the day it took office to get ahead of the curve and deal with this country's record deficit. Twelve and a half years after George Osborne first wielded his axe on our public services and four years after his successor, Philip Hammond, announced austerity was coming to an end, what are the lessons from that infamous economic programme? How were the decisions taken, and why? And crucially, did it actually work? We've spoken to those on all sides, whether in the room where it happened, or watching, despairing, from a picket line. 
it always seemed to be easier to top slice departmental spending than it was to raise additional revenue through taxes. My argument in the Labour Party was that we were approaching the economy in the wrong way. And the end result was that lots of these cuts fell on people in society who really couldn't weather that. We've lost a decade and it shows. I think that does depend on your perspective and it's important to try to be balanced. For those people that think it did work, they would say, look what just happened to Liz Truss. From Politico, I'm Alva Ray. And this week on Westminster Insider, we're revisiting austerity and asking what lessons we've learned from it over a decade on. This country borrowed its way into trouble. Now we're going to earn our way out. And I commend the budget for the house. They used to have a magic phrase in George Osborne's treasury team when things got really sticky. The time has come to uncork the gawk. A phrase that became so famous in Westminster during the early 2010s, it was frequently aired in newspaper columns, in the MPs' tea rooms, and more than once in the Commons Chamber. It appears that, as has happened on many occasions, the Chancellor has chosen to uncork the gawk. The gawk being uncorked was David Gawk. You might know him as an ex-cabinet minister or from previous Westminster Insider episodes as the thoughtful, remain-supporting ex-Tory MP who frequently critiques his own party. But before all of that, he was one of George Osborne's most trusted lieutenants. Back in their days in opposition, he was a key member of Osborne's shadow treasury team and was then a treasury minister throughout Osborne's six years as chancellor. Mr Austerity. There was a change with the global financial crisis and there was a recognition that we were uh, not as rich a country as we thought we had been and that ultimately we were going to have to live within our means and that meant that borrowing was going to have to be brought down, that there was a much larger structural deficit in truth than anyone had appreciated prior to the global financial crisis and that we were going to have to take steps to bring that under control. And it also has to be remembered that at that time, there was a lot of unease about what this might mean in terms of risks to nations. Sovereign debt risk was a, was, was a concern. We saw that with Greece in particular. But there was a worry that the UK was not on a sustainable footing. We had been hit harder, perhaps, than many economies because financial services was such a big part of of the UK economy and also that our level of borrowing before the global financial crisis was perhaps higher than we would want it to be. Cameron and Osborne of course won the election though they needed to partner up with the Lib Dems to form a majority government. Billions of pounds worth of spending cuts were swiftly announced along with a raft of tax hikes. Austerity 1.0 was underway. Today is the day when Britain steps back from the brink, when we confront the bills from a decade of debt. When we got into power in 2010, there was still this sense of uncertainty in the markets and the need to sort of reassure and set out a plan. There was also a sense that politically now was the opportunity. You know, so we had a coalition, we had five years, 
you needed to take your tough decisions at the beginning of the parliament. There, there was, of course, a criticism that you know, perhaps we, you know, ideally in terms of the economic cycle, could we have waited a year or two? Uh, and, and there's something to that argument. I don't want to dismiss that. But the truth was, you know, if we were going to do anything about getting the deficit down, we needed to move pretty quickly. There were areas of expenditure that you know, could be described as nice to have. Um, you know, things like child trust funds. There were certain programmes that we could drop. Um, and then it was it was a question of you know, really quite tough settlements with most of the government departments. Um, and that was you know, that was going to be quite tough. I don't want to be blase about it. And we weren't blase about it at the time. You know, we, 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 we knew that there were trade offs and there were decisions that we made that we didn't particularly want to make. We believed that we could do a certain amount without um, you know, that being too disruptive. but. But you know the, the scale of the necessary fiscal consolidation, as we saw it, meant that there were always going to be tough decisions. Government spending on the NHS, schools and foreign aid were all ring-fenced from cuts. Everything else, from big infrastructure projects to welfare payments to a raft of local authority services, got hit hard. Here's Karis Roberts of the centre-left IPPR think tank. They chose to focus a lot of the cuts in unprotected departments. So there are some things like the NHS, which with demand increasing and the popularity of the NHS, it was quite hard to make cuts there politically for them. And so cuts fell on other services um, and indeed some capital spending, so investment. And then they also fell on groups that the coalition government I would argue, probably thought were less important politically to them. Critics of austerity took issue, not just with the budget cuts themselves, but a bigger shift in the government's tone and wider policy. So you saw a very harsh rhetoric and also cuts, particularly on the welfare system. Where did that show up? Well, it showed up in terms of disability benefits uh, becoming less generous and also in terms of how those services were run. So, for example, in the benefit system, you saw increases in sanctions and targets given to job centre staff to make sure that there were really harsh work requirements and work search requirements and so on. Um, Now, I think this suited a political narrative that, you know, you had George Osborne standing up in Parliament and saying uh, that it simply isn't fair for someone to see their neighbour still staying in bed while they're going out to work and that sort of thing. The benefit system is broken, it penalises those who try to do the right thing, and the British people badly want it fixed. So there was a really kind of emotive argument being made, and the end result was that lots of these cuts fell on people in society who really couldn't weather that, and it really hacked back on the living standards that they were able to have, their ability to get by, their ability to put food on the table for their kids and so on. These were big cuts and a tough rhetoric to match. And it's quite extraordinary to hear, over a decade on, that some of those around George Osborne thought that the scale of the cuts could actually cause violence in the streets. Well, it'd been a long time since government departments had seen real terms cuts in public spending. 
And what we were doing was going a lot further than you know, anything Margaret Thatcher and you know, Jeffrey Howard, Nigel Lawson, her chancellors had done. And we didn't really know how the public were going to respond to this. And I can certainly remember conversations with colleagues. I'm not particularly thinking of, of George Osborne here, but of others. So sort of going, well, is this going to provoke you know, violence in the streets? And, you know, there are going to be huge protests. Uh, and, and of course, you know, there were protests over the student loans and in the summer of 2011, there were a series of, of you know, riots in London. But I think that, with the benefit of hindsight, that was, was an outbreak of criminality. I think that was politically motivated. But I think we thought there could have been, you know, potentially more protests and, you know, a sort of sense of the country being quite hard to govern. And actually, we didn't see as much of that as, as we feared. You know, I think there was a sort of wider acceptance. I, you know, I think this point gets forgotten now. There, there was a wide acceptance that some tough things needed to be done because the public finances were in a perilous state. Torsten Bell used to be an advisor to Labour's Alistair Darling and Ed Miliband. He's now head of one of the UK's most respected economic think tanks, the Resolution Foundation. He believes the cuts of the early 2010s were a central factor in widening the regional inequalities which Boris Johnson's government at the end of the decade was so keen to address. If you combine two things, reductions in public spending with a redistribution that was happening at the same time within those budgets from poorer places to richer places, that will lead to some very bad outcomes in some of those poorer places. Death rates, educational outcomes, quality of the public realm, high streets in those places, those have been very real and those didn't receive much discussion while they were happening. It was just like, oh, well, spending cuts in some kind of big picture, total, it's all abstract. Actually, it's very real for lots of people. And and that is actually, I think, a lot of what is lying behind a lot of the levelling up discussion and what, of, what a lot of what Michael Gove is now talking about as a Conservative uh, levelling up secretary is really talking about whether he can try and undo some of that. And yet, for all the challenges of living through a period of austerity, there was still acceptance, as David Gork says, that tough things needed to be done to sort the public finances. Together, we are turning our country around. And for your sake your family's sake, the sake of your children and their future. We must see this through together. The Conservatives, of course, were re-elected in 2015, with an outright majority this time and with the austerity programme still underway. You know, I think partly this is testament to the sort of political skills of David Cameron and George Osborne. And I would argue that the, the sort of realism and small-c conservatism of the British public you know, they sort of recognise that actually we do ultimately have to live within our means. And, you know, a government that had a plan and was prepared to take some unpopular decisions, but, you know, apparently for a purpose. If you've got a kind of narrative that is taking hold, it's been pushed by politicians and then is being repeated in, in the media, then it's completely understandable that people did think, oh God, this is this is the particular thing we have to care about. And... I guess where, you know, there's a very kind of powerful analogy that's often used of the household. You know, if you are a consumer and you've got a credit card debt, you obviously need to reduce your spending in order to, or you need to earn more money, but you need to do one of those things in order to repay the debt. 
that analogy is entirely wrong because government finances do not work like a household finances. Uh, instead, they can actually alter the rate of growth. They can alter GDP and alter their own tax revenues by the policy choices they make. So through wise public spending, they can actually boost the economy, which can result in more sustainable public finances and so on. There were some very powerful analogies that I think are still with us today being bandied around in the public conversation and by politicians that gave the impression that there was a particular way of looking at this that was completely wrong. Another academic trying to measure the real-world impact of austerity was Professor Michael Marmot, who chaired the World Health Organization's Landmark Commission on the Social Determinants of Health. He wrote a major report for the UK government on health inequalities in 2010 and released an update in February 2020 on how things had changed a decade later. Life expectancy for people in the UK had stopped improving for the first time in 100 years and actually worsened for some of the poorest. My summary was two simple sentences. We've lost a decade and it shows. Life expectancy in England and the UK had been improving about one year every four years for a century. And in 2010, there was a break in the curve and the rate of improvement slowed dramatically and just about ground to a halt. And for the poorest 10%, the most deprived 10% of people outside London, life expectancy went down. Wow. And there was a good prima facie case that that was a direct result of austerity. Take spending by local government. In the least deprived 20% of areas, the spending went down by 16%. In the most deprived 20% of areas, the spending per person went down by 32%. So what we've got is the greater the deprivation, the greater the reduction in spending. The increase in poverty was a direct result of government policy. If you look at changes that the Chancellor made to tax and benefits after 2010, people in the poorest families of working age with children, in the poorest 10% of households, would have had a reduction of 20% of their income as a result of the Chancellor's changes to tax and benefits. And then the richer you were, the less the reduction. So government policy was to increase poverty and to make inequalities worse. It was government policy. So looking at both the regressive nature of the funding settlement to local government and the effect of government policy on inequalities and poverty, that starts to provide a ready explanation of why health might have stopped improving and life expectancy might have stopped improving, inequalities got bigger and health for the poorest people got worse. When we're looking at the impact of austerity and and whether it worked, can you make the case for why actually your report and the things that you look at are a good way of, of measuring the success of those policies? The work that I did with the WHO Commission on Social Determinants of Health over the last two decades has led me to the strong view that health 
is a good measure of how we're doing as a society. So if health has stopped improving, it really means society has stopped improving. If health inequalities have increased, it really means inequalities in society have increased. So there are other reasons for saying austerity didn't work. But my reason for saying it didn't work is it damaged the health of the UK population. And it was a political choice. It wasn't a necessity. And that's really damning. If the political choice meant that more children were consigned to poverty, that more people were dying before their time, and this was a political choice, wow, please learn something from that lesson. And don't ever, ever, ever repeat that mistake again. I put some of those criticisms to David Gork. I think we were always conscious that the decisions that we were going to make would be unpopular with a lot of people. Um, in, in truth, I think possibly thought they might be more unpopular than they turned out to be. Um, I think you do have to go back to, to the situation that we saw ourselves in in 2010 and, and the belief that we, you know, we did need to make some tough decisions. I do think, particularly with the benefit of hindsight, that I think the, the composition of the fiscal consolidation was too tilted towards spending cuts versus tax increases. You know, I think spending cuts were inevitable. They, they, they were going to be necessary. Um, and I don't underestimate how difficult it would have been to have put taxes up by more than we did. But I think taxes probably could have played a, a bigger role and spending a smaller role. And, and that wouldn't have changed everything and there would have still be complaints. But I, I do think that, that the balance you know, should have been a little bit different. And, and I think initially, if I remember correctly, the balance was going to be a little bit different. The fact that you know, if we were looking for more money, at a budget or an autumn statement, it always seemed to be easier to top slice departmental spending than it was to raise additional revenue through taxes. So hang on a second. I think we just heard there a trusted member of George Osborne's Treasury team telling us that the balance of spending cuts to tax increases could and should have been different. That might sound kind of an abstract point, but it's really not. We'll be looking more at that in part two. Stay with us. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A message from Lloyds Banking Group. Lloyds Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance 
to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. In this uncertain and dangerous world, David is proposing that there be cuts in public spending now, six billion, and that will shrink the economy at a time when we need to support the economy. It's easy to forget, given all that's happened since, what the political debate actually looked like going into the 2010 election. £6 billion saving this year, so we stop the jobs tax next year, that means saving one out of every £100 that the government spends. Reeling from the global financial crisis, there was a broad political consensus that net public spending in the UK needed to come down, even if there was less agreement internationally or among academic economists. The disagreement, then as now, was over how soon, how fast, how deep, how much should be saved with cuts and how much should be raised through tax increases. Only a small group of marginalised Labour MPs on the left disagreed with the need for cuts altogether. Among them was a little-known backbencher called Jeremy Corbyn. The 2010 election was essentially an offer between the two parties, between austerity heavy or austerity light. And indeed, during the campaign, Alistair Darling said, uh, we're going to make greater cuts than Thatcher ever did. The Tories said they would make even greater cuts than Labour's going to make. So it wasn't a great offer. And what I found was um, a sort of sense of dispiritedness by many people. But this was not the worst time compared to what came later on. I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying that in 2010, there were no food banks in this constituency. Now there are food banks in every community centre, most churches, and um, they are very busy and they are seeing an increased number of people coming there. So the levels of poverty and stress and depression have got worse, irrespective of COVID. COVID then diametrically made it much worse than that. The criticism from Ed Miliband's Labour was that the government was moving too far, too fast. While Labour tried to walk a tightrope between criticising the scale and pace of cuts but emphasising its economic credibility, Jeremy Corbyn felt his party needed to be bolder in opposing austerity outright. My argument in the Labour Party was that we were approaching the economy in the wrong way. We were offering to manage when we should be there committed to change. And so the whole point to me of challenging the leadership in 2015 was about challenging the fundamentals of the economic strategy, which was austerity. And uh, that was where it wasn't just me. We, as the left of the party, put forward this view that the party must go into a future general election absolutely committed to ending austerity and redistribution, which is what we did in 2017. Heavily involved in Labour's response to austerity in that period was Torsten Bell, 
as a special advisor to the Chancellor Alistair Darling and then Ed Miliband's head of policy. He holds little truck with the idea that Labour wasn't offering voters a real choice following the crash. I think it's very, very misleading to conclude that had you had a Labour government in 2010 to 2015, it would have been identical to a Conservative government. Some things would have been worse. I think some things would have been better. On the fiscal policy, a Labour government definitely wouldn't have gone ahead with the overwhelming focus on public spending cuts rather than tax rises that George Osborne elected to and roughly 80-20 split. And remember, the Conservative government in 2010 to 2015 was also cutting quite a lot of taxes, raising the personal allowance, which this government is now reversing, and then also cutting corporation tax, which this government is also now reversing. That wouldn't have happened. Remember, that was roughly £40 billion worth of tax cuts in that parliament. So that would have been significantly smaller spending cuts being required to balance the books to the same extent during that phase. So yes, uh, some people drawing straight lines on charts back in 2010 might have thought things looked quite similar. I think that is probably very misleading in terms of what actually happens when different parties govern because the world changes once you're actually running a country. Torsten Bell takes a nuanced view now on whether austerity was indeed an effective policy. That, again, does depend on your perspective, and it's important to try to be balanced rather than just reflecting your own opinion at the time. So for those people that think it did work, they would say, look what just happened to Liz Truss. Fiscal constraints do exist. You can, Markets can decide they don't want to lend to you. Um, and that in particular at a time, and that even if that isn't a very likely thing to happen, if it does happen, it's very bad because you're then your debt cost rise, you end up having to do even more austerity. My personal view is that, and always you've got to have a balance of risks when you're thinking about these things, is that that risk was overstated. It was overstated because this was happening in an era where central banks were cutting interest rates and that actually the risk of those market situations with low inflation, with um, uh, low rates was, was very low. And that the flip side danger, which is that you deepen the recession, that's why you saw the economy weakening in 2012 and 2011, is that it didn't do a good job of strengthening our recovery and probably delayed it by several years. And there were real implications if you look at the long-lasting youth unemployment during that phase. So that's the balance of decisions and people have to decide which one of those views of history they favour. You know, you don't want to say it's completely clear-cut, but clearly my view is it would have been better to take a slightly different approach. And even if you don't agree with me on that, on the macroeconomic judgment, I think almost everybody should, should agree by now that the balance between taxes and spending was a mistake and that the British economy and British social cohesion and quality of public services has been significantly damaged by the decision to put so much of the weight of consolidation on spending cuts. The UK economy hasn't, it's important to say, performed well since the financial crash. Real terms wages have barely grown, investment is poor and productivity is famously dire. But David Gawke says there's another big reason for that. Yeah, things obviously were not easy for the first two or three years. The economy didn't grow strongly. Our critics said that was all because we'd undermined public confidence and we were taking money out of the economy. But look, this was also the time of the crisis in the Eurozone. And there were still clearly problems in terms of the banking system. You know, businesses weren't getting credit in the way that they needed and so I think that made it you know, really quite difficult for the UK economy, and that would have happened regardless of our fiscal policies. By 2015, we were starting to see the benefits of it in the sense that 
clearly the UK economy was growing strongly. Government borrowing was falling pretty fast at that point, and people were optimistic about the future. By the time we got to 2017, you know, the economy had the disappointing year. Living standards were, in fact, falling in 2017. That the UK, rather than being one of the fastest growing economies in the G7, was one of the slowest growing economies in the G7. And the, the mood had changed. And we can talk about what changed in 2016 to move the country from being on a fairly optimistic, positive path to being on a less optimistic and less positive path. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think the, you know, it, it, the, the, the plan, if you like, was we, we were going to have to go through some years of pain. And then with the public finances fixed, there were reasons to believe that the UK could grow strongly in the second half of the 2010s. And that came to a pretty shuddering halt after the referendum was on. In recent years, with Theresa May heralding an end to austerity, then Boris Johnson standing on a platform of reversing many of the cuts of the austerity era, and with coronavirus shining a harsh light on parts of the UK system found to be badly wanting, you could feel George Osborne's economic programme becoming discredited, even in certain Tory circles. But one of the most helpful things for his reputation, if not for the rest of us, has been the crisis we've just seen as a result of Liz Truss and Quasi Quarting's brief, brutal mismanagement of the economy in their bombshell mini-budget. When George Osborne and colleagues talked in 2010 about the crisis that would ensue if we lost market confidence, it was an abstract idea. Now we've seen it happen. It does highlight that if you lose credibility with the markets, there is a very, very big cost to pay. And it is much better to err on the side of caution, maintain that market confidence, and you know, it's easier to retain it than it is to regain it. And once you've lost it, it requires a lot of hard work and quite a lot of pain to get it back. And so I think, you know, the mistakes that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng have made with the economy were pretty similar to some of the things that some of our critics were saying at the time what we should be doing. Um, yeah, OK, they, they might have been focused more on public spending than on cutting taxes. Um, but you know, in the end, you do have to have sustainable public finances. But it's interesting to hear what David Gock brings up again when I asked him if austerity wasn't just a necessity, but, as his critics would say, ideologically motivated. Look, I think it depends how we define sort of ideological. But look, I think both David Cameron and, and George Osborne would describe themselves as fiscal conservatives uh, and a belief that ultimately you've got to live within your means. Now, whether you call that pragmatic common sense or whether you call that ideological depends upon where your starting point is. I, I would say that was more a sort of commonsensical approach. I go back to the point that prior to the global financial crisis, you know, the talk was about sharing the proceeds of growth. So I, I don't think, you know, in that sense, George was you know, terribly ideological. I think what drove what followed was the view that if we are going to have to put the public finances on a sustainable footing, if we are going to be making difficult decisions, 
that it would be much easier for a Conservative government in particular to do that by reducing spending than it would be by raising taxes. And truth be told, when in government, that was our experience. We ran into more difficulties with small tax increases, most famously in the 2012 budget, than we did in really quite substantial spending cuts. Uh, And, um, you know, I think I think George took lessons from from 2012 that, you know, he he was just finding year after year when he had to make more difficult decisions that spending proved to be easier in those years than increasing taxes. So this is where it gets properly interesting. At least one person from the heart of team austerity believes they got the precise balance of cuts to tax increases wrong. And they did so in large part because it was too difficult to pass tax increases through the Tory party. Can you explain just, I, th- I think it won't make sense to some people, or it, like it's not intuitive to some people why raising taxes would be harder than announcing cuts. What was it about that that made it more difficult? Um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fair question. I think partly it was an internal party dynamic. So when we attempted to raise a lot of small taxes in 2012, you know, we had a whole host of rebellions and people saying, no, this is, this is sort of wrong and, and, and so on. Ah, remember the pasty tax? How did George Osborne turn a pasty into a hot potato. Well, it's some sort of rule now, isn't it? So if you buy your pasty cold, it costs so much money, but if it's then heated up, it then pay 20% extra because it's now become an ambient pasty. Mm. It's become uh, more than room temperature. <laughs> yes, it's a terrifically well-thought-out piece of legislation. <laughs> that budget, you know, very famously unravelled. And, yeah, I, I think to a large extent, it was about kind of keeping the sort of party on side. Strikingly... David Gawke says they just kept finding that it was easier to top-slice more money off a budget than it was to put up a tax. And when they tried, it met with public opposition, opposition from their coalition partners, and, crucially, from their own backbenches. If you want to raise serious sums of money, you need to raise it from large numbers of people. And we did that initially with the VAT increase. After that, there was quite a lot of both parliamentary opposition from the government backbenches and public opposition as well. So it was political forces pushing George Osborne and his colleagues into a balance of cuts to tax increases they hadn't originally intended and that at least some of them say they would do differently if they had their time again. Does it matter? Here's Torsten Bell. Leaving aside all the politics, in the real world of public services people rely on, that doesn't have this binary thing in it that politics does, which is, you know, it really does matter whether the cuts are 10% or 5%. It really, really does. And so I'm less interested in whether people agree with the politics of previous things. The question is, how much do we want to spend on our police? How much do we want to spend on our NHS? How are we going to fund that with tax rises? And in the end, those are economic and judgments as well as political ones. Even if, publicly, there's no settled verdict on austerity, I wonder if this is the lesson that all the architects of austerity in the UK have quietly learned. 
their quiet regret. George Osborne and his former chief of staff, Rupert Harrison, have both, after all, been advising Jeremy Hunt on the autumn statement announced yesterday. The balance of spending cuts to tax rises is 55-45, rather than the 80-20 split of austerity the first time round. Jeremy Hunt has announced his autumn statement in the shadow of what went before, and we see the lessons of austerity 1.0 everywhere in his announcement, from the timetable of cuts, most of them after the election, to the balance between tax increases and spending cuts. But if there are other lessons to be learned from the first wave of austerity, it's around the politics of it, too. The way Labour struggles to be both fiscally credible and decide how much it opposes what the Conservative government is doing. And how the final shape of austerity was dictated by parliamentary arithmetic, by the ideological instincts of the Tory backbenches. And that's one to keep a careful eye on in the weeks and months ahead in Westminster. Joining me now is Jacob Rees-Mogg. How do you feel about going into the next election defending the biggest tax burden since the Second World War? Well, it's not something that I'm in favour of. I think the Conservative Party should ensure that taxing... Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Alva Ray. If you've enjoyed it, please spread the word, follow us and maybe leave us a nice review. And don't forget you can go back and listen to past episodes, including Jack's episode on when budgets go wrong, including George Osborne's budget from 2012. Thank you to my guests this week. My producer was James Tyndale of Whistledown Productions. And here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez and my editor is Jack Blanchard. We'll be back next week. See you then. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.